as usual, we're going to be giving away a box of books at the end of this podcast to one of our Patreon supporters. So listen all the way to the end and you'll find out if you are one of the lucky winners of a box of books. My wife loves the fact that I'm finally giving away some of my books. I mean, I've still got too many in our houses. It's just made of books. To... In Fahrenheit 451, I would be some kind of conflagration. That's a very that's a very good uh, representation of deity. Yeah. Well, we are joined by uh, Alice Roberts, the uh, scientist and uh, communicator of ideas, and also for Josie, uh, wild swimmer. Yeah, which is one of Josie's favourite things. So this yeah. is uh, Josie and Robin's book shambles. Uh, that I know is you Alice from Roberts. your swimming work. That is, <laughs> is Josie Long. Um, do you want to start on swimming, Josie? Well, it's too big a topic because I don't want to be like, oh, it's good, and also I don't want to be like, where's your favourite places to swim? Are you London-based? No, I'm not. I live in North Somerset. Hang on, what's your pool? Uh, what's your lido? Do you have a lido? Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we do. We have a rather lovely lido um, in Bristol. Um, <gasps> Henley's Clif- Lake? No, the Clifton Lido, which is a it's a Victorian uh, lido, and it's been it's been done up, and it's absolutely beautiful. And it was one of those places that had settled into ruin and decay. Mm-hmm. And my friend Mark Horton did a piece on television about it. And I remember him kind of crawling in and they kind of went in with the cameras and it was all cobwebby and things were falling down. And it just looked as though it needed to be knocked down immediately. And they have resurrected it. And it's this beautiful little pool um, in the middle of Clifton in Bristol um, with a restaurant. And it's, it's very, so nice. it's, very the, uh, it's not very wild, though, I must say. It's not a, you know, it is a it is a swimming pool rather than a. Yeah. Rather than a wild place to swim. But you did but a documentary like... on BBC Four, wasn't it, for uh, about? Yeah, I yes, did. I saw you. It was I so did. Great. I did all about sea swimming and swimming in rivers, and I even swam in a cave, which was really weird. We swam in this uh, this this deep dark cave, went went caving into it, and then and then got into the water, and then turned out all the lights. And that was, was it really weird. It wasn't at all. It was it was quite cold, yeah. but it was um it, it was really peculiar when you were swimming in the water because you. It, because you were sort of looking around, and there was it was it was absolutely pitch black, and so it was almost like sensory deprivation. It was quite strange, and it started to do weird things. Wow! With your so it's perception. like a flotation tank. Yeah, yeah. It was it was brilliant. I loved it. Me and my it. sisters go to do flotation in Petswood together. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> and my sister calls it going float. She's like, "Should we go float?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'll go float." How and long do you do experience? it for? Yeah. Oh, for about an hour and a half. It's right. I've done it. Uh, three times I think once I was just very tired and I was grateful for no one bothering me once it was kind of pleasant but boring but once there was this real psychedelic element to it where I felt like I was having this strange kind of trippy uh, like visuals and kind of out of my body and stuff what about the sense of time Oh. How much in terms of you, you? I mean, there's that great experiment, isn't there? A much longer one, obviously, where placing people in a cave uh, to see about the body clock and actually what is the the time that without the human being have the stimulation and the change of light, etc. What is the pattern of sleep? I don't, know, I don't know this experiment. I think what it was happens? down to about 23 hours. I think I think the day was an hour shorter, and, yeah. a, and a day became and, and uh, but of course you're removing. But then you wonder stuff. if it would decay any further. So like mm. if you kept somebody in a cave huh. for 20 years with their data and you know with their day go down to about 12 hours. That's still got <laughs> a lot of problems in terms of getting that passed by the uh, ethics committee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I found this when I was doing while swimming actually because I was pregnant uh, with my daughter, so we were filming it. Wow. Um, about seven and a half years ago, because um, she's nearly seven now, 
and um, I did a swim in the dart, uh, which was very cold. It must have been barely 10 degrees. Wow. And I swam in a swimming costume because the water was really peaty. And wetsuits are cheating. Wetsuits are, they're kind of cheating, but you can stay in longer. So it's a a bit of give and take. It's like if you want to just have a splash and get in and then run out again, then do it without a wetsuit. But if you want to stay in for longer than 10 minutes, then you've really got to have a wetsuit on. So I didn't didn't have a wetsuit because they wanted to see my legs underwater. And we were doing some filming with a little underwater GoPro. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So I got into the water and the director said, you know, as soon as you start to feel cold, get out. And I thought, well, yeah, that's fine. And I've done lots of lots of swimming in the sea in winter and lots of surfing, but in a wetsuit. Yeah. So I didn't really, I wasn't really ready for what was going to happen. And what happened is that it hurts when I got in. Yeah. And then basically, I never felt cold. And after about twenty minutes, I started to slow down. Hypothermia. That so happened to like, me. I was going, oh no, right, I'm slow. And I and I thought, oh, I just stand. So I just stand up. So I stood on the bottom because it was I was within my depth and touched my thighs and I couldn't feel myself touching my thighs at which point I thought I think I might get out and then as soon as I got out um, I started shivering, shivering and yeah. I carried on shivering for about half an hour I had that with friends <gasps> um, we went swimming in this lake called Semmerwater which has a uh, I've got this book called Lost Villages of England and Semmerwater apparently the legend is that there was a a village there and this old crone came seeking shelter and she was turned away and she cursed the village and that's why there's Semmel Water Lake and there's a village at the bottom of it. Oh my God, and you can hear the church bells ringing. Yes, exactly. On a moonlit night. And me and my friends went in it in November and we both got like a little bit of subcutaneous so we were kind of fine with it and again, even though it was freezing, we weren't cold and it was very kind of Nordic and it was very serene and we swam halfway into the lake which is not that big but like then suddenly I was like, I feel really warm and sleepy. No, How funny. no, it's really it's weird. it's not even cold, I feel warm and sleepy. And then obviously it's like, and then my hands are like cramping yeah. properly. And it was became this thing of like, I'm trying not to panic, but I really am aware that we've turned around and that's the shore and we have to get there. Yeah. And that was that thing I got out and then it all kicks in, the shivering. and the, It's uh, astonishing. But it's also so it's weird, isn't it? Cause I, and, and, I, and I really wasn't ready for it because I'd never, I'd never... I'd never done that. I'd obviously never stayed in cold water for that long yeah. without a wetsuit on. Because when you've got a wetsuit on, uh, you start to feel your extremities getting cold. Yeah, all different. Um, and then you just get out. Um, and that's fine, but that wasn't what happened at all. So then, ethically, I was thinking, oh my God, I'm pregnant. You know, uh, have I harmed my, my baby? baby okay. So I started looking for, um, obviously, being an academic, uh, I, I got into Google Scholar and started uh, looking for papers on um, uh, pregnant women and hypothermia to see if anybody had done experiments with pregnant women plunging them into cold water to see if it harmed their fetus. Nobody done these experiments. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I did find an experiment on sheep. Um, where they put oh. sheep into cold water and the and the lamb was thermally protected. Um, oh. And I must say, I mean, my daughter's seven. She seems to be absolutely fine. So, um, yes. Does she like the cold? She escaped. Does she uh, like and the yes, cold? Yes, actually, she's yeah. She does like the cold. She it's very difficult to get her get her to wear a coat. Yeah. So that's the thing. So maybe, she's a child of yeah. the cold water. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Achilles being dipped in the sticks. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. I think the coldest I've got. I did a uh, show called Robin Ince isn't waving. And oh, it yes. was, uh, and I had to go and I did, the photo shoot was me in a suit, a cheap suit I bought from Oxfam, uh, in the the sea in about February or March in Brighton, and I got in it as far as I could, 
and it was freezing and the water was uh and and then when i got I, and i thought i'm very cold sorry but I'm Robin, fine. why <laughs> because it was just the idea of not waving but drowning so i thought it was quite a nice yeah, idea why in february because That's it was just the time when they the needed it, was. For, it it was when they needed it for edinburgh fringe brochure or whatever oh, and no. uh and so i did it and then i didn't notice how cold it was the same thing and then she's five hours of shivering that night i was doing a gig and it's not a shivering that like you go you can see almost it's a shivering inside Cramping. isn't it it's a really and then when i did the stupid show and everyone kept saying about the poster why is it called robin Ince isn't waving when clearly you are oh, and Jesus i was Christ. like god have none of you read stevie smith so i have not used any versions of a stevie smith quote for any of my show titles since because it nearly led to hypothermia and also led to a lack of comprehension as well. What a waste of everyone's time. You so you didn't know they're not waving but draining? No, everyone just thought, well, you seem to be waving and I thought, I'm in the middle of the sea and there's like, it's uh, never mind, <laughs> never mind. Sense. You should call your next show, I've Been Too Far Out All My Life. Oh, that's... Uh, it's the same poem. Yeah, I know. That's uh, Maybe I'll just do sentence by sentence of uh, of that particular poem. Uh, the uh, Your first book that I remember reading was the Incredible Human Journey. I don't know if that actually was your first book that was based on your TV series yeah of yeah. working out the through through predominantly through DNA the journey of where humans began the idea of beginning in Africa and then now so that taking a TV series and turning it into a book how simple was that or how difficult is it taking what is a, a voiceover and you walking through Africa and going I don't yeah. think I'm gonna make it I really enjoyed doing it. it was, that was my second book, actually, because the first one I did was also a TV tie-in. So I never I never sort of set out to become an author, which is interesting. Um, and I... So the first one I did was to go with my anatomy and physiology series, Don't Die Young. And that was more of a kind of general textbook about anatomy and physiology, doing various organs of the body. And I really enjoyed writing that. Um, and then, and then when I was doing Human Journey, I was desperate to write a book of that because there was just so much information there, and I knew that in a, you know, in a, a, a series, even a five-part series, is only an introduction to a subject. Yeah. It's something to get people interested. It's something to start inspiring people and and hopefully encourage them to um, to carry on and uh, and follow that trail. And so I wanted to write a book, and and the book was um, was really quite. It ended up being almost quite independent from the television and I wrote it as we filmed it and um, so it has conversations with all the experts that we met um, whilst filming the programme including some experts that didn't make it into the final programme which was which again I felt was quite nice because those yeah. people had given up their time and had talked to us about their expertise it's a DVD it, extra it is like a DVD extra yeah and um, and then there was a lot more academic stuff in there as well because I was reading um, loads of research um, as I was making the programme as I was making all the uh, the programmes and the series and uh, and I wanted that to go somewhere so I, well, that's, I think I'd I also you... just done my PhD so I was kind of into writing at that point I was like right I need to carry on writing. Because um, you interviewed, I think, at the Cheltenham Science Festival. Was it Stephen Oppenheimer? Is it Stephen Oppenheimer? Yeah. So, so Stephen was um, was a consultant on the series, and and he's an inspirational guy. He's he's a he's a medic. Um, he um, travelled to uh, Malaysia when he was a young doctor and got interested in. Um, different different diseases with a, with a genetic element to them and that's what got him into genetics so he kind of he kind of approached genetics from a from a clinical background um and then eventually um started becoming very interested in what mitochondrial dna this this little bit of dna that's wrapped up inside the um the power stations the mitochondria inside each of your cells um what that dna could possibly tell us about ancestry 
Um, so he was one of the first people to start doing this synthetic, this wonderfully synthetic thing, which is which was the basis of the series, which um, is genetics, but it's also but it's also um, archaeology um, as well. Um, was it him who explained? Might have been watching you where there was someone saying one of the big mysteries of the journey of the human being from Africa was it used to appear that we kind of left Africa, went into Asia and then just went back again and no one could kind of work out why the pattern would be like that until someone actually then went, oh no, I've worked it out now. It turns out we went into Asia and then we just came back again. Which I just like as this kind of like this grand mystery and go, no, no, it really was going, not ready yet, let's go back again. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I think we have... Uh, the DNA, the modern DNA. So you've, you've got different levels of DNA now, which is which is wonderful. So when we made that series, um, we had mitochondrial DNA, and people were starting to do other bits of genome sampling. Uh, now we've got much more comprehensive data, and the picture's got more complicated. Um, the 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 general kind of um, broad picture has stayed the same, actually, which is quite a relief because they re. They, they repeated the series for the first time this year. Oh, God, it would be awful if the, if you were like, this is all kind of outdated now, I know. guys. Sorry. I mean, if the, the, the series producer rang me up and said, they're going to repeat Human Journey. And I was like, oh, brilliant. Oh, no, hang on a minute. It's eight years old. You know, science has moved on a bit since then. But that's do a beautiful feel... thing. Sorry, Jess. No, no, it's the same thing. It's like, do you feel like... Because you're not going to get that if you're... Well, I suppose you would. Everything moves on very yeah, quickly. Yeah. It, it, you think that these things will be definitive, but they just won't. The the nice thing about it though, so I had to sit down um, with the with the producer Paul Bradshaw, and we sat in my house and we watched all five hours, really kind of carefully to make sure that it was all okay. Mm-hmm. And there were bits we had no money to to reshoot anything or re-record anything. All we could literally do was nip bits out, and there were a few little bits here and there. So there were a few nips and tucks we made. Um, so in, like George Lucas series, <laughs> yeah, just nip it out. Um, but broadly. The story had stayed the same, and it was uh, this year. There were a whole slew of um, nature papers on uh, the the exodus, the the expansion of modern humans out of Africa, um, with with broadly the same estimated dates. So all this extra, wow. all this extra information has come in. We think that there probably were, you know, several expansions out of Africa, but the only there's only a trace of one in modern human DNA. So if there were you know, earlier excursions. We know there was one 120,000 years ago because we've got skeletal evidence. We've got, you know, fossil fossil people in Israel um, at that point. That didn't seem to have gone any further. Um, so it's it's likely that there were quite a few expansions, but only there one prototypes. led to the whole colonisation of the world. Yeah. That's what I find interesting. Mm-hmm. Carl Sagan's Cosmos, apparently, when they did Don't that again. Don't mention Carl Sagan. When they did 15, 16 wow. years later, they did uh, some stuff and they were like, how much needs to be changed? And there were not that many footnotes because when he and Andrean had been uh, writing it, they'd partly taken into account what do we think may be the most fragile science and therefore mm. let's let's not, uh, let's not do focus that. focus on that. Yeah. Why and can't we talk about Carl Sagan? Really, do you not I, like him? I really don't like him. Wow, you're about the so only I've, person I've ever met who doesn't. Why? I've found a few people. I've, I've, been, I've actually outed myself on Twitter about this because, um, because most people go, because Brian Cox yeah. obviously loves Carl Sagan. Yeah. Um, and so I've told him that I, I, I don't like Carl Sagan and he finds that quite difficult in the same way that he finds it quite difficult that I don't want to go to Mars. You yeah. know what he's like. But he doesn't he's want like, to go to Mars either. He told me he wanted to go to Mars. No, he's, he's, he's realised that he couldn't get in a little ship like that and be without all his fine wines. Oh, good. I'm glad no, no, no. I mean, he might want other people to go to Mars, but he's not going to... There might be enough, you know, of his fancy mantra shea or whatever it is. No, 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 no. no. 
Yeah, so you can't say, I don't know what it is about him. I think, you know, oh, he's obviously brilliant. Uh, he's a brilliant scientist um, and a brilliant communicator if you like him. And, it's, like and him, it just comes down to you. very, you know, it's very subjective. I just find him immensely creepy. I think it's very okay. great. I can't bear to watch his Royal Institution Christmas lectures. That no, but to be fair, that completely. was <laughs> apparently he, when he turned up, he'd been given slightly wrong briefing. And uh, it's not a great series of lectures for all those people oh, who no. know him as a great communicator. He turned up, because I went around the archive and there were things like the slightly broken, I think, Jupiter that had been made for it and stuff like that. So let's talk about someone then that I think is brilliant and hopefully, uh, because I met him uh, and he wrote a wonderful book as well, which I should have included in the 2016 books, uh, Svante Parbo. Oh, yes. That, is, that, that name to me is absolutely beautiful. Svante is Parbo lovely, yeah. is uh, this wonderful uh, scientist who has basically the person who's mapped the Neanderthal uh, DNA, basically, hasn't he? Wow. The, the, and, yeah. and he's so have you done it? Because that's an amazing story when you go trying to find bones that have not, the DNA is not so degraded. Then eventually finding this cave, I think was it in northern Spain? The first, say so the first uh, Neanderthal DNA that they got out, I believe, was from uh, a Croatian cave, from a little fragment of bone in a Croatian cave. And we we caught up with Svante Parbo and Ed Green uh, in the labs in Leipzig for, for Human Journey. Mm. And it was interesting because this was one of the bits of human journey that was outdated. So they'd done mitochondrial Neanderthal DNA and there was no link between modern humans and Neanderthals. Um, and all the mitochondrial DNA showed was how long ago the split was. Right. Um, with no evidence of any interbreeding since. Um, and then the following year, the following year, uh, they had started to do the actual nuclear genomes, so the chromosomes themselves. And... Um, they published the draft Neanderthal genome and they compared it with five modern human genomes and they showed that people who had largely non-African uh, heritage, so, so Eurasian people essentially, had more Neanderthal DNA in their genome than African people. And they said, well, you know, how has this come about? Because they should have the same. You know, we, we split from Neanderthals, um, you know, half a half million years ago, so they, sh they should be about the same. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, the only way that you could end up with extra Neanderthal DNA in those Eurasian genomes was if there'd been a later injection of Neanderthal DNA into them. Um, so we did actually, at that point, record just a little line of commentary for the for the series, which, of course, when we when we re when we repeated it this autumn, we dropped it in. When we repeated it in autumn 2016, we dropped it in. Um, and then and then his lab has gone on to do. Um, much much more and it's and it's just astonishing now so um we we know that um, most people of uh, of broadly european and asian um heritage um and that includes um the americas as well by extension if you think about the colonization of the world um have between one and four percent uh neanderthal dna in their wow. genomes and i've got a fair bit so i'm 2.7 percent neanderthal it wow. turns out so when i made the series i didn't think there was any shenanigans going on and I didn't think the bone evidence, the fossil evidence, indicated any shenanigans. But it, it definitely, definitely happened. <laughs> it's all thanks to cannibalism that we know. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah, I wrote an article for it for BBC Focus, who sacked me recently. Hello, BBC Focus. Why did they sack and, you? And uh, they, no. they've reduced the number of pages, and they really don't want my column. And uh, but it was miserable, isn't it? It, it was uh, the... Um, 
basically, the, I think these, and again, I might be wrong on this, but people read Neanderthal uh, uh, because it's just, what's it called Neanderthal Man, isn't it? No, no, Neanderthal, why have I forgotten the name? I said it before. Anyway, you can just call them Svante Parbo, yeah. no, but Svante Parbo, I'm saying the book, the actual title of the book, uh, is, is he always mentions everyone else who was involved in it. He never tries to turn it into this egocentric journey on his own. But they, they found these bones and they had small markings in them which suggested that all the tissue had been cut off and eaten wow. them. This was out of... I forget the uh, name. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. It suggests the material has been cut off. It doesn't suggest it's been eaten. This is well, no. my issue with these defleshed bones. Whenever there's a defleshed bone story in the news, I get very cross because the, the extrapolation is always... They've, they've, they've taken the flesh of these bones and they've eaten it. Well, like, no, no, what they, you what can they... see they've scraped it off. You don't know what it they've done with it. Well, no, the, the actual cave yeah, environment cave. where they're in, exactly. they believe this was desperation cannibalism. This was uh, a starvation cannibalism. So Sounds that hypothetical they had no... to me. So that it may well be hypothetical, mm. but anyway, the, the, the flesh and, and muscles have been cut bone. off. And the reason it is Neanderthal, man, and the reason that uh, that helps is that then it means that lots of little bugs and stuff don't start feasting on the bones yeah. because there's no fun yeah. there, oh. and therefore it doesn't degrade, degrade the DNA. So that, to me, the idea that possible cannibalism Possible cannibalism. Fucking or at least defleshing. They're always yeah. spoiling a good yeah. cannibalism yeah. story, yeah. aren't yes, they? But, yeah. Um, so uh, that's interesting because I've uh, excavated uh, burials where uh, within a skeleton there's been very different preservation. Um, and it took me a while to work out what was going on. And um, this was in a, in a cemetery in Bristol. It's actually underneath the old bus station in Bristol. <laughs> And um, there'd been a cloister, a medieval cloister there. So it was, I love that kind of juxtaposition of the, you know, the the busy, bustling bus station, and then underneath that was this very calm, serene space. Wow! And the graves of all these people who, you know, may have been monks or they may have just been high status people in the community, but they were they were all buried under there, waiting to be discovered. Um, and some of them were in, some of them had been buried in coffins and some of them had been buried into these in, in little niches. So they'd kind of cut out these niches for them in the bedrock and slotted them in. Um, so there was kind of variable, variable preservation across the site. But within a skeleton, there are quite a few skeletons that the skull was quite perfectly preserved. Um, the arms were quite nicely preserved. Uh, the, the leg bones were fairly well preserved. When you got up to the hips, things got a little bit... Uh, dodgy and the whole middle area of the skeleton so the um the the lower thoracic spine and the lumbar spine um and actually and actually the lower ribs had all, had all kind of gone and the pelvis was mostly gone and i thought this is really odd this is you know why why are the limb bones surviving so well and and all of these bones around the middle of, of the individual not surviving so well so i started to look into it and it seems that the most likely explanation has to do with the soft tissue in those areas so uh, when you die, your friendly gut bacteria um, are not so friendly anymore. Wow. And they start to eat you from the inside. So you, you bloat. Like we're sick your... of looking after this thing. Yeah, we're sick. No, it's just yeah, let us down. It has let us down, yeah. So, so, they, so the, the, the belly blows up and the, the intestines become full of all these bacteria that are you know, uh, degrading and, and decomposing everything in there. Uh, and obviously decomposing the bone as well. So I think I think that was the most likely explanation. No, it's yeah, monks yeah. making it into monkish haggis. It's oh. cannibal monks. It's definitely cannibal monks. Cannibal and you will do anything to deny well. your own. Just because you are so closely Neanderthal, <laughs> you become the oh She's prote- no, protecting not, him. Isn't yeah, she? not my grand the Neanderthal. She'd never have eaten everyone. Well, wow. 
Not sure I trust your partisan judgment. Mm. So basically what you're saying is if you want your skeleton to be well preserved over the centuries, you need to get somebody to mummify you. Get all yeah, this or stuff actually out. just well not even mummify you, actually deflesh you. Yeah. Deflesh. So they probably boil you up actually. Um you should ask my friend Ben Garrett about this because he, he makes skeletons in his garden. Not human skeletons, I hasten to add. Um, what type of skeletons? Uh any, anything, anything he finds, he'll he'll bury it and then dig it up a while later and uh, as a skeleton. Oh, so he like yeah. get, like a raccoon. Not a raccoon because that's not native. <laughs> a fox. Uh, he might have done a fox. Yeah. This is very <laughs> sinister. Have you ever been to a body farm? I remember reading Mary Roach's book, it's uh, a body Stiff. Farm. It's I think there's one in Australia. I don't know how. I think there's one in America, or there more than one in America. There's at least one in America. It's a it, basically it's a, the idea is that in order to understand better how bodies decompose, and for instance, how long it takes the body to decompose under certain conditions, um, the best thing to do is to get a body. Um, and stick it under various conditions, you know, leave it in a wood or stick a load of leaves over the top of it or actually bury it in a shallow grave or bury it in a deep grave and go back a little bit later and dig it up. So it's basically forensic research. So it's people who've given their bodies to science? I hope so. Yeah, apparently in Australia, I read an article with her and she, the, the woman said the trouble is they've actually got so many people who want to give them, which still isn't that many, but enough that they go, oh, we haven't got enough, but there's only a certain number that we need. and we'll So to... some people kind of have to die... Knowing that they're not going to be for the purposes of science, you know, ravaged by raccoons or whatever it might be. Not probably not <laughs> raccoons. I know nothing about raccoons. We've had a lot of raccoon chat today. Have I, we did, too I much don't know anything chat? about raccoons. Can't have too much. Apart from what I saw on Planet Earth too, which is quite cute. Do you know? I feel embarrassed. I've not seen Planet Earth. The one or two. Isn't that awful? And everyone loves it. And it's, it's so important. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll watch it. It's about animals <laughs> or something, can it? I'll watch that later. It's on iPlayer. <laughs> Who, who are the writers that you, in science oh, yeah. writers? In fact, when you said you never, you hadn't been thinking about writing a book, it reminded me, a friend of mine who's, who's just written her first book, thank heavens it's going to get published. She watched, I think it's Abby Clancy, who I think is a uh, someone who's... Um, is she a wag? I think so, yeah. And uh, apparently she, she watched her being interviewed and uh, the interview, it must be Philip Schofield, I imagine, said, because it's the kind of thing you do, said, so did you actually write this book then, Abby? And she went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I sat down with this other person and I came up with the characters and stuff. And uh, my mate's kind of sitting there going... What was the other person doing? Writing it. And (laughs) and then someone said, oh, but isn't it nice that she's honest about that? I said, but I'm not sure that's honesty. Or whether it's someone going, that's how books are written. You sit down and go, right, it's Tony and, and Polly... And they live in uh, France and they've got a car. And got Thanks very much. Tibbity type, tibbity type. And then, then, then the, the interviewer said, so have you always wanted to write a book? And I went, no. And you just think of all those authors at home going, but you haven't even, and your name, and I, oh. So once you wrote your first book, though, did, you, did that give you the taste to uh, go, as you said, post-PhD as well, yeah. the process of writing, the process of communicating in a different way from 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 television which i suppose you know in some ways can be more forgettable you don't have the same relationship with reading that you do with watching something on television yeah i i I loved it actually i really really enjoyed it and um and i was pleased that the i I was pleased that people liked the book because then that gives you obviously an excuse to carry on doing it because I found it quite nerve-wracking. The the first book I'd done was more of a more of this kind of sort of textbook, almost a I don't want to say a coffee table book, because it but it was somewhere between um, a, 
a, a sort of textbook and a coffee coffee table book. I don't know what that. What is that? What's something that's between a? Is that? Does that exist I as a genre? I don't think there's what this hybrid of. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's something you could dip into. So it's something um, that has the illusion of being approachable, mm, and is then placed on a actually... table where people realise the the depth is alienating. Is that uh, nice, no, nice. <laughs> Well, I hope it's not alienating, but it's a, but anyway, it was a very different thing. So, so then, Human Journey was um, 140,000 words, and uh, you know, this quite big tome and, and fairly academic. And I've uh, I've done I've toured it round, and 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 people people really like it. And also, it was nice to know that people liked that extension from the television as well, and they kind of appreciated the 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 extra information. Um, and I yeah, I did I really did enjoy writing it. So I've writing is is now something which i you know consider to be um almost a kind of third of what i do so i'm wow. um i'm an academic and i'm and i'm a broadcaster but then writing is a really big part of my life now which i hadn't anticipated at all and i love it i absolutely love it so i'm writing i'm writing my eighth book at the moment although within those eight books there are some proper coffee table books um which which are I possibly shouldn't count as real books. Well, I don't, I don't know. know. I think books, but... any like it would be awful if you were like I've written two proper books. Like yeah, oh. it's it's all part of the uh, part of the roster of achievements that you must maintain. But these the big and the, and the coffee table books I've done with them. Um, I say coffee. That's probably doing them down as well. They're big um, atlases of the human body and and atlases of, atlases of anatomy. Wow. Um, but there's quite a lot of detailed information in there as well. So rather than just having individual labels, I wanted you know rather than you looking at a picture of um, somebody's muscles and it says this is pectoralis major and this is rectus abdominis, I wanted to put a bit more information about you know what those muscles actually do or you know uh, perhaps how they're how they're innovated. So there's so there's extra sort of information in there. Uh, and I enjoyed doing those because I worked with a fantastic team of artists, and uh, I I just sketched up what I'd like to see on each double page spread, like Abby Clancy, and then the artists made this beautiful book. Yeah, so yeah, it is a space. Yeah. What is a coffee table? So a coffee table book I see as something though which won't necessarily give you any information. So you're, I'm not sure These yours aren't is table books. because These a coffee table book is something books. where They're people big. just kind of go, yeah. oh, oh. Oh, and that's it. And they just kind of flick through and it's coffee very table, colourful. Coffee table books are things like, let's fetishise the Soviet Union in photographs. Oh, that's what wow. a coffee table book is to me. Have you still got that book? No, I'd got, like to see that. I've got one about Pyongyang, which is very depressing, but it's beautiful. It's not like a cartoon book by the... Uh, no. no, no, no. It's called Welcome to Pyongyang and it's photographs. This is what I want to ask you about books. Um, we've talked talk more about your work and what relates to your work but what about fiction what do you enjoy fiction wise do you read much fiction i don't actually which is really shocking um i i should read you know it's one of those things where i think i should read more fiction uh because i don't want to be stuck in this uh i don't want to be stuck inside my own genre and i don't want to just be reading books that are relevant to what i happen to be writing at the time because i think you end up being a worse writer I think you have to. I think but it's you have tricky, to though, isn't it? Because you're specialising different styles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm mostly um, I'm reading um, the invention of nature at the moment, um, which just won the uh, Royal uh, Society Prize, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Which is amazing. Which is about um, Humboldt. Yeah. And uh, so that's not a that's not a work of fiction. That very much is a you know sort of science book. Yeah. Um, and. Um, Andrea Wolf writes so. I mean, she writes absolutely beautifully, and I'm and I'm really enthralled by it. But it, uh, the, she she blends together the 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 scientific with 
the biography of, uh, of Humboldt in a, in a really beautiful way. And she visited the places that he went to. So it's, it's very descriptive and beautiful in that way. So it doesn't feel dry at all. You know? yeah. I mean, that's why it won the prize. It's absolutely superb. But is that, is that a problem sometimes where there are people who will sniffily say when something is approachable, when something will actually change the way you understand the world, because it's not dry enough, then some people within certain communities will kind of go, well, I mean, it's in the end, it's just... The... And, and that seems to be a battle in science communication sometimes. Yeah, which is I don't I don't know. I mean I don't I don't see it so much in or I haven't haven't come across it so much in writing actually, but certainly in television. I think television is considered to be quite a sort of fluffy medium by a lot of people. Um which which I think is interesting and it might be because um of a misunderstanding about the about the challenges of uh, creating a story that lasts an hour or plays out over yeah. over three one hour programs and 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 what you your ambitions and and what you're what you're attempting to do within that hour. And I think that some academics will perhaps watch a watch a programme and expect it to be comprehensive, and it's never going to be comprehensive. Why it's do not, they still have that shouldn't attitude, be comprehensive. though? If you're able yeah. to get some of these ideas on that. I mean, what are the biggest... I, I presume you do have battles, though, where there are some people involved in the production of something who go, oh, our audience won't understand, our audience won't understand, and this does seem to be a problem across the board, and you, what are, what are your ways of sometimes going, I think, one, people will really be delighted by this idea, and it will take some work, but do you have any technique to manage to really make sure that you can get in the, the, some of the science that you love, which is sometimes they try and push aside? I think sometimes it is... Um... It is a question of um, understanding that you can actually make complex ideas accessible. I must say, I think most of the producers I've worked with recently, over recent years, have been have been really open to that, and a lot of them have had a science background as well. So they've been they've been quite ready to to try to do that. Um, but I think that. It is funny. I think I think science by its nature scares some people. Mm. Um, and I, I, you, you asked me earlier about people that had influenced me, and 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 really the the person who's writing I still admire the most. I think this is true to say is Stephen Jay Gould. And I, abs- I, you know, I fell in love with his his science writing, his writing about paleontology and evolution when I was a teenager, and um, he. He also wrote about the process of uh, of science writing, and and he said that it's not, you know, it's very definitely not about dumbing down, and it's very definitely not about taking a complex thing and simplifying it so that it no longer makes sense. Yeah. It is about um, working with those complex ideas, stripping out jargon, finding metaphors so that people can access the complexity, but keeping the complexity there. And I think that is the that is the key to it. If you can do that, I mean, I think Brian Brian does it brilliantly with 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 physics, which is a really tricky thing, I think, because you can only, you know, if I'm if I'm watching his programs, I think another interesting thing about science is that people view it from the outside and think that it's a big glob and we all understand each other. Yes. And, uh, you know, I have I don't have a clue about astrophysics and the maths is too hard for me. So I can only approach it through metaphor. So uh, so he can kind of create this. This narrative of uh, uh, of metaphors, which means that I think I can understand, yeah. I can understand astrophysics, and I can understand what gravity actually is. But that's um, and I know it's an illusion because I don't understand the maths. But like that's where it is so important to have things on television and have things that are communicated in a way that's like joyful and interesting and like more popular. Because otherwise, how else are you supposed to like get a handle on 
the broad range of things that are going on and how else are you supposed to feel anything other than like this alienates me and I can't do it and therefore ugh. the and the other weird thing about the about the complexity I think is that when you I mean science by its nature is is reductionist so you you reduce things um by by pulling it apart um whilst respecting the fact that you do at some point have to put it all back together again and the mm. complexity is there but you pull things apart until there are there are fragments that you can understand mm. and then you can start to put it back together again so if you can do that as a scientist you should be able to do that as a communicator as well and you should be able to let other people into that and i think that i mean i i certainly have found when i well when i started teaching at, at university you you realize that when you when you teach something you you have to understand it at a level that perhaps you know you thought you understood it before but when you're going to teach it to students and you're anticipating the kinds of questions they're going to ask, you think, oh, well, no, actually, I don't understand how that works. And I, yeah. you know, if I if I ask myself that question, actually, there's a there's a gap in my knowledge there. Because yeah, so you, you can't just go, well, I just got taught that, so that's right. Yeah, so, so that's, I just so that's how it, it is. Yeah. yeah, they, yeah. Um, so so you end up with a better understanding yourself through that process of uh, of deconstruction and and not simplifying, but finding a pathway through the complexity. Um, so. Going back to, to to working with television producers, I, I think sometimes I mean I've been doing it for a while now, so I think um, in terms of in terms of I suppose persuading people to include more complexity or to include more more detail, um, that it basically comes down to me being able to do that. So if I can do that, and if I can demonstrate that I can do that, then, then most of the time it, it that works. Although sometimes I do employ some sneaky strategies. So uh, one of my sneaky, uh, yeah, I've got a few sneaky strategies. Some of which I probably shouldn't talk about because then people know what my sneaky strategies are. Um, but uh, there was there was an interesting example um, last year when I was working on a program about food, and. As an academic, the other thing is that as an academic, I, I kind of started working in television and wanted to put all this detail in, all this detail in. And then actually that's not the point. The point is is creating a is creating a coherent narrative um, and ending up with enough detail so that it makes sense um, and enough detail so that people will um, understand enough about the subject yeah. to, to come along with you. Again, it doesn't have to be comprehensive, and it took me a while to understand that, that it's not about cramming in as much as possible because that's not a good programme. Um, and it's not about bullet points, you know, it's not like hitting learning objectives, yeah. <laughs> as you sometimes try to do at university. And, and I don't think you should be doing that at university either. I mean, I've, I've totally changed the way I teach at university too because of the way I do public engagement and, and broadcasting. Um, but anyway, yeah, so going back to sneaky things, we had about... Uh, five or six minutes of a program where we were talking about peanuts and how the protein in peanuts complements the protein in bread um, in wheat um, because there's one particular amino acid that's particularly low in in, in wheat protein and um, and high in peanuts and then it's the other way around with another particular amino acid and the amino acids are called methionine and lysine and uh, the 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 when we talked about the script and you know that that's a conversation that's had between the um the executive producer and the series producer and then the director you're working with on the day and the, and the researcher and me um the 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 consensus until it got to me was that we shouldn't mention the words methionine and lysine and i said well um, what am i meant to say just amino acid a and amino acid b then you know they're they're quite poetical names as well. Yeah. I like the poetry of science, and you're allowed to have poetry if you're talking about history of art or if you're talking about um, history you, generally. You wouldn't go like painter one. Yes, painter one and painter two. Yes, <laughs> they're two complicated names. We're not going to mention those. Of course. Um, 
and I and I and you know it's like oh we know but if you say methionine you have to explain it no you don't you don't there's an amino acid that's all that's all that needs to be said um so anyway uh eventually I I gave in on that one but while I was setting up the lights in the lecture theatre where we were filming, I drew the chemical formulae of the eight essential amino acids that the body cannot make on the board ha. behind where we were filming. Ha. And then at the requisite... And their names. I wrote their names underneath them. And then at the requisite time in the, in the, in the discussion with the, uh, with the dietitian, <laughs> my friend Sue Bite, I just kind of turned to the board. <laughs> so even though I didn't actually say methionine and lysine, I, you got I it displayed in. it, and not only the name, but the actual chemical <laughs> structure of it as well. So I was very pleased myself. Uh, you made pretty it much run out of time. Harder. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I just need to uh, check. Uh, well, one thing I want to start two things. Uh, one, what do you find when you do public events uh, are the ideas that most capture people's imagination? Mm. What do you see as the in ideas for people going further into your area of expertise? I think for me the 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 big ideas that I'm really keen to to tackle and that um people still seem quite surprised by and I think they're kind of difficult to engage with are that humans are not special they're not more special than any other species mm-hmm. you know we have we have lots of things that we think are special and that's fine but that we're not you know we say we're we're not um we're not sort of marked out as something separate from the rest of nature we we have this kind of strange extended phenotype to use richard dawkins's phrase uh where we alter the environment around us but actually lots of animals do that we just we, it just happens that we do it in this extraordinary extreme way um but we are products of evolution you know we're products of biological evolution just like every single other animal on the planet so the idea that we are animals and, and that's a that's a problem in our language as well because usually when you talk about an animal you don't mean a human mm. um and um you know i have the, i'm having this conversation with my three-year-old at the moment where you know i'll, I'll say to him you are an animal and he's like, i'm not an animal oh. so, and, and, and absolutely I, I'm, I'm very keen that he understands that he's an animal and that it's an acceptable thing to be um but it is i mean but then on the be... other hand occasionally i go don't behave like an animal um so so i think that's a big thing understanding that we're not separate from nature but part of it i think for me and then um for me that broadens out into a into a responsibility you know the fact that we are then conscious and we're we're conscious of our own uh impact on the on the environment on other species so i think it brings with it this this sort of terrible burden of responsibility a terrible burden it's wonderful as well but uh you know the fact that we're part of nature and actually we need to we need to look after all of it that's the end of that. We didn't have a chance to wet Noah's Ark. I, I didn't talk about any fiction, which makes me... I, I, fine, I don't, don't know why it makes me feel like a really boring scientist. No, I have not read, at all. I have read yeah. fiction over the past year. Um, but some of it's... Yeah, I read I read Still Alice, which is fiction, but based on the story of... No, a, it sounds too miserable. Not really, into, no, yeah, too sad. Yeah. So, yeah. thank you. We ended on an upbeat thing, and they dragged it all down at the last minute. Oh. So, uh, thank you very much. We'll talk about uh, Noah's Ark Zoo, which is near Bristol, another time. The, uh, Please don't. We won't. <laughs> uh, it's and, Noah's uh, Ark Zoo. It's, oh, it's, it's, it's a creationist zoo. zoo. Yeah, oh, fuck off. Well, on that, oh, fuck <laughs> off. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> thank you, Alice. Thank you, Josie. Goodbye. Thank you, Bill very much for listening and if you would like to know about all the other podcasts we've done and also reading lists for every one of those guests from Alan Moore to Stuart Lee, Chris Hadfield, Sarah Pascoe and many others then just go to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles. 
Thank you very much to all our Patreon supporters, some of whom are Patrick Anthony Swales, Di Stubbs, Rory Williams, Tessa Barber, Kate Neal, Charlie Hitch, Ashley Shield and Andrew Howard. And this week's Patreon supporter who wins a box of books is Michaela Purcell. So, Michaela Purcell, if you get in touch with us on Twitter, you can DM us at Cosmic Genome or you can email us at contact at cosmicgenome.com with your details and we will get your prize out to you. And a reminder that later in January, Book Shambles is expanding into Cosmic Shambles, which is going to be a new network of all new podcasts and web series and documentaries and live events and a whole lot more. And to find out all about that, go to cosmicshambles.com and you can sign up for free to the mailing list now. And with that, we'll be heading on tour across Australia and New Zealand in March and April this year with Robin and Josie and Helen Chersky and Lucy Green and Matt Parker and lots of other guests as well. That's CosmicShamblesLive.com. You'll find all the dates and tickets there. Josie Robin's Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm -hmm.